0: Welcome to Hazel Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness of this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. And we made it. We did it. This is the final chapter of the new story arc, chapter 60, the last chapter in what will eventually be a volume 10 collection. Starting this off, when we got our first new chapter, knew that we would have so many twists and turns to get here, but
1: here we are. Yeah, yeah, what a ride it's been with these new chapters. But before we slip up and say too much, folks, huge spoiler warning. As the title states, we are talking about Chapter 60 today, the brand new chapter this month. And so that means if you are not all the way caught up, including Chapter 60, you should stop listening right now. Go get caught up and then come back and listen.
0: Okay, with that spoiler warning out of the way, and really seriously, chapter 60 has some, some doozies in it, so if you are not totally caught up on 60, stop right now. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else, before we get into this chapter, just a reminder that we want to know what you all think of these new chapters of Saga, and this whole new story arc that will constitute volume 10. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about a fan theory from the Saga comic book Facebook group, and we'd love to know what you all think of it after you hear us talk about it, whether you're in that Facebook group or not. A little shout out to Zach McLernan, the admin of that group. Thanks for all your hard work,
1: Zach. You run a great group. Yes, indeed. And actually, dear listener, we need your help as well, because we won't be getting brand new chapters of Saga until January of next year. Fiona and Brian are going on an extended break now that chapter 60 has been released and volume 10 is done. So in the interim, we want to try and experiment with different kinds of episodes on this podcast. And we want to hear from you what you would want us to dive into. Is there a favorite character that you think deserves a deep dive episode? Do you think we should investigate a certain species in the universe or some other vague lore detail? Let us know, send all of those fan theories to at loreparty.com. Don't forget the two S's in the middle.
0: We've gotten a lot of great ideas. We've had some emailed in by listeners like Bailey and Al and Xavier, but we want more. We need more fodder for the Hazel Story machine. So let us know what you are interested in hearing, and we'll share your idea and just continue forth into this new world of no more new chapters.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be a long one. We have to wait again. I feel like Saga fans at this point are pretty good at waiting.
0: Yeah, just as a reality check, because there's been some folks very mad about this extended hiatus. Brian and Fiona have always taken a break between arcs. It's just usually three to four months, not six. So it's a little longer. It's not like this is totally unprecedented, just as a caveat for Brian and Fiona.
1: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's talk about today's episode because things are a little bit different. A reminder, though, as usual, this is not a deep dive episode. This is our first reactions and instant takeaways to this brand new chapter that only recently came out. So expect our conversation today to be a little looser, definitely less organized, and a lot more geeky and excited. And we have a special surprise. That
0: is right. We have changed things up. It's not just me and Abu that are going to offer our reactions to chapter 60 and actually the entire volume 10 story arc. We have a special guest on this episode who we will tell you all about and you will get to hear from right on the other side of this quick break where we'll introduce our guest and get down to the business of discussing this very fun and very intense chapter 60 of Saga. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. So with us today is someone who is no stranger to thinking and writing about saga. Jordan Calhoun is the editor in chief at Lifehacker and The Takeout and also author of the recently released Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, religion and pop culture. He also also has a very good newsletter from the Atlantic <laughs> called Humans Being, where he writes about pop culture and games and TV and just all sorts of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the very first editions of that newsletter, Jordan, you wrote was entitled, Why You Should Read Saga, Aside from Me Begging You.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so clearly, you're a Saga fan. We're here at chapter 60 of this book. And we would love to know what was your sort of First reaction to chapter 60, and maybe also the arc of new chapters from 54 to 60 since the book came back from hiatus.
2: Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for that generous introduction. <laughs> I am really happy with this arc and how I think Brian K. Vaughn is very good at emotional pacing. Mm-hmm. So I would juxtapose this against a very recent thing that I've just finished watching a week ago, which was Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. A show like Stranger Things, the emotional high point is always happening which means that there's not an actual emotional high point it's always on 10 there's always some like dramatic scene that's that's supposed to have some type of emotional resonance mm-hmm. bkv does something different in this issue and in this past art where the culmination of this issue and i assume that we're talking spoilers candidly right
1: mm-hmm. oh yeah openly yep so
2: the culmination of this issue is Obviously, you know, Hazel losing her shit over these memories of her dad dying. Mm -hmm. And that was the type of emotional hype that I think many lesser writers would have started with. Mm. You know, after Marco dies at the end of 54, you would expect to come back and to have the emotional weight of the comic be based in what our emotional reaction was, which is, oh, shit, Marco just got killed. Yeah. Right. Like this. This is a big deal. Instead, BKB does the opposite where he's not only downplaying Marco's death in the beginning, like both to audiences and to the characters within the show, but they're like actively shitting on Marco. <laughs> they're like <laughs> pissing on his grave. They're having right. sex, making fun of him. Yeah. They're they, they're carrying around his skull. They're crushing his skull to do a magic spell. They're completely dismissing him as this unimportant character even though we know he's important and eventually like the prestige of it all the trick of it is that you just start to go with what the characters are portraying and then it's not until the end or this most recent issue Mm -hmm. where you're like oh no it was was just as, as big a deal as i thought it was it just is showing up now in this climactic scene so i think it was really good emotional pacing to sort of downplay marco's death until the end to see how hard it actually hits hazel in the same way that many of us will downplay our emotions and downplay our reactions to things that are deeply traumatic or deeply difficult for us until we reach a breaking point and then show hazel reveal that it was that big of a deal
1: yeah and it sounds like that pacing worked for you
2: it did work for me because i think the alternative would have been fan service. I think the alternative would have been like, everyone is flipping out because Marco died and everyone loves Marco. And this is a really, really big deal. I think it's swinging for the fences to do what BKB did. And I respect that. I I think it takes more courage to downplay that. And I think it would have been easier. And I think most writers, probably myself included, would have tried coming back to it with the scene of you know, Marco's funeral or people yeah. crying, bawling over Marco's death. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where it's raining and it's dark and everyone has their umbrellas. And it's like really, you know, this supposed to be this like dark, sad, traumatic thing and trying to pick up on where we left off, which, all which, which was at a 10, right? Like we left at a 10 in emotional height. And I think that picking up at a 10 would have been what most writers did. I am totally okay with, trying to downplay it and trying to trust the audience to feel the emotional weight later on.
1: Yeah. And how how was that end of chapter 60 for you, those last couple of pages? I think I speak for all of us. When I say that hit hard, how did that hit you you when you flipped the page and just saw first the rocket ship tree on fire, but then Hazel's just utter breakdown over the next few panels and pages?
2: Yeah, I think it hit the way that it was supposed to. It was, I mean, to, to see the flashbacks and to see Hazel just like screaming daddy and then a lot of being like, yeah, that's not here. Like that, yeah. to see her have that complete break is again, the type of break that we were feeling at the end of 54 and that most people probably expected 55 to pick up with. And I'm glad that it was like, Patience, patience, pa- okay. Now, like this is when it's happening, and it gives some buildup to it. I think that this arc overall is a foundation, it's a building arc. Like, nothing significant mm-hmm. happened in this arc. We met characters that were, you know, they're going to be passing, you know, an- another crew of journeymen passing through the story. None of them, I think, are going to be like very, very significant, but it set a foundation that the rest of it will build on, and it ended up doing its job, I think, in getting us. Reinvested in the characters, reacclimated to the characters and what their personal story arcs are going to be, what their personal struggles are, and then continuing what will pretty predictably be more Brian K. Vaughn emotional manipulation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that characterization of it, just straight up calling it out as emotional manipulation. You know, all storytelling is emotional manipulation, right? No matter what yeah. the tools you use and the devices you are, you're creating feelings that aren't real about characters that aren't real and so you have to do some degree of that and yeah for me this chapter just like hooked me from the very start with every bit of that like as soon as clara says in that very first panel like first of all we see clara again Would yeah uh,
2: she's my favorite she's <laughs> my favorite
0: that's amazing it's amazing to know that that clara is your favorite character uh, abu is a goose guy yes um nice and, nice uh, I I go back and forth between Marco and the will. I think I'm more of a Marco guy now. I didn't have a kid when I read this book the first time. And since Mm -hmm. the book went away and came back, I now have a daughter who's turning five this week. Mm -hmm. So I'm like in my feels about Marco, but seeing Clara again. And then she says the thing about, she references her own arid snatch and it's just like, (laughs) like, fuck yeah, Clara, like. So you're immediately, you're excited and elated, and then the elation just kind of builds through the whole chapter with all these little nuggets that are almost kind of fan service, right? You get the, like, guard in the prison with the D. Oswald heist tattoo. So you're yeah. like, oh, yes, like, there's a cult of D. Oswald heist. That's amazing. And then you get this, like, fan service stuff of the Chuck E. Cheese showbiz pizza scene. Abu and I talk about this in the podcast all the time when there's stuff from our mundane world that gets represented in the saga verse. Just how delightful that is. Yep. And Hazel has this amazing conversation with Squire about his admission or his, you know, revealing his love to her. And she handles it like like an adult, like a pro-ass adult, yeah. like a kid who has had to grow up too fast, basically, yeah. is what she handles right. it like. Right, uh, And all of that is just like affirming upon affirming upon affirming. I don't know. There's so much joy. I don't know if there was a moment of joy in that scene for you, Abu, as
1: well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, I just want to call out the incredible looking water monster ice hockey game at this arcade that I really want to play. <laughs> that looked like so much fun. But yeah, that that whole Chuck E. Cheese scene. I mean, obviously, again, speaking to BKV's emotional manipulation, he's setting us up for the downfall of the tree on fire and the breakdown at the end by bringing us up and giving right. us this scene where, you know, that sort of red, we don't quite know if it's a red herring yet. We don't know if it's totally resolved, but the Squire professing his love for Hazel seems to have been solved in a pretty mature and grown up way where Hazel has expressed her feelings and Squire has seemingly accepted them. And they've, they've moved on from that presumably. And so, yeah, we're like riding this high for most of this chapter until like Jordan is saying, boom, the other, you know, the other shoe drops and we get to those final couple of pages. Um, I am curious though, Jordan, there's a, Like, among the highs that we got, that we've sort of touched on in the chapter so far, did you have one that stood out for you? The one that brought you the most joy from chapter 60?
2: So it was going to be one of two things. One of them is the one that you just mentioned, the scene at baked Chuck E. Cheese. Like, that's just a glorious thing. Yeah. But since we already mentioned that, I'll go with the other scene that stood out to me. And it's going to take some context, probably to explain why it would stand out. Mm -hmm. But there's a scene where... Alana and Hazel they have their medallion and they're selling for the first time again and Hazel is holding these two boxes in the air saying behold ladies and gentlemen and other kinds of people like basically starting to do their sales pitch and she's really happy and she's there with her mom and then of course like the police come and they have that interaction yeah but that panel where Hazel is with her mom and happy is a good example of similar to the Chuck E. Cheese thing like where there's a moment of peace and happiness yeah. amongst what you know is going to be taken away, right? Like, you know that there's going to be chaos, you know that there's going to be turbulence, and it's going to be terrible, but those brief flashes of peace within all of the the chaos are those things where it's like, oh, life is worth living in this moment. This is the thing that we're losing when things are turbulent. These are like the short, brief, happy moments of wonder it makes me think of a lot of times when I'm reading saga, emotionally the thing that I think of is have either of you played The Last of Us?
1: Oh uh, yeah. I just finished The Last of Us Two like a month ago.
2: Okay, so you you are you are very recent in like that those feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so like there's moments in The Last of Us and The Last of Us Two where you know there's a giraffe in the city oh, at this yeah. moment of quiet wonder. Or there is Ellie playing the guitar to a a girl that she has a crush on right and that's another quiet peaceful like there's these moments of peace in what you know
1: ellie and joel in the museum with the astronaut thing
2: yeah exactly exactly like there, there there are the moments where you know it's temporary you know it's a dark world you know the whole shtick of this type of story is that it's going to crush your heart like that is that is the goal of of these types of stories yeah They're going to break your heart. They're going to build you up. And you know that they're going to break your heart afterwards. And those quiet moments are the ones that are, they feel peaceful. They feel like an oasis in the middle of the story. And I always like try to cherish those moments in the stories because that will, I mean, it's its a great feeling of peace and happiness, but it's also the other side of the heartbreak that I'm going to feel later on, that peace and happiness is taken away. So I love those transition scenes and BKB has a good number of them where like suddenly in the midst of all of it, you know, there's, there's a moment of happiness and wonder.
0: Well, there's even with this scene specifically, it calls back to the first scene in the first chapter from this volume, right? At the beginning yeah, of chapter yeah. 54, Hazel and Alana are out in the marketplace illegally selling their baby yeah. formula and the cops roll up and like basically hustle them and they lose all their product. And it. It's super awful. So it feels like that's what they're setting up, right? Like you get this moment of joy and then the cops come in and they're going to fuck them up. But instead
2: Alana gets that medallion. display this medallion <laughs> and it's this
0: moment of triumph. So you get those like undulating curves of emotional appeal where it's like super high peace with, with Hazel and her boxes. And then the cops show up and you're like, oh fuck, this is where the shoe's going to drop. But then it doesn't. Because you never want your narrative, right, to just go straight line up and then down. You want those little ripples because that's what keeps the interest going. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's just keeps all the tension, throughout. For sure. Yeah. Well, and and you know the callbacks, the way that this book uses callbacks is are is always super amazing. I don't know, Abu and I tend to gush about this story.
1: Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit.
0: I will say, so I, because apparently I felt like I needed to engage with more fan community beyond the folks that listen to this podcast, I joined, there's a Facebook group that has about 5,000 people in it that read this book. And I joined the group recently. Yeah. And there was, somebody posted something about this arc that had me thinking and sort of rethinking about how I feel about it. And somebody posted, quote, saga went from my most look forward to comic to just another in the stack. Hmm. Like somehow it's like, it used to be for me, it was also, I used to look forward to this book coming out because I've read this book month by month since it started in 2012. And so I used to look forward to this more than anything else. And I still look forward to it more than anything else. So I read this post on Facebook and I was like, what is it here that has folks so, I don't know, like, critical of what I still think is an amazing work of art, right? Volume 10 is not my favorite volume, right? If I was going to rank all 10 volumes, one through 10, I wouldn't put 10, this this volume as the top of that rank, but I wouldn't put it at the bottom either. So I, I I wonder if either of you have any theories why at the end of this arc, there's a little bit of backlash that feels like it is happening. And it's weird.
2: I would say that it's the the natural outcome of success especially after a long break like mm. anytime that you're going to have a hiatus that lasts as long as it does and you have all of the anticipation on will it be great will it be great will it be great then you come back like it's yeah it's, it's it's going to be hard to meet people's expectations which is again why i would go back to the bravery that it would take as a writer to not play into that and to try to have a super climactic you know action-packed first arc returning. There's not huge things that are happening. It's playing the long game, right? So, like, mm-hmm. people's reaction to, if it's a negative reaction to this fragment of the story, well, that's all it is, is a fragment. This is Great. a very, very long play. Yeah. So, it's it's really like, you know, staring at a piece of bark and not looking at the entire forest. So I'm very, again, I'm very happy with the way that he approached this arc and not trying to make fan service out of it too much and not trying to make it this emotionally high thing. If you have read, like, I don't know, Why the Last Man is still, mm-hmm. like, that's the thing that I will rival Saga with, another Brian K. Vaughn series. It's, you know, there <laughs> the, the the emotional... Rise and fall that you were describing earlier, Alan, like that is definitely present through Why the Last Man. And if you're looking at any single arc, it may or may not be your favorite arc, but it's all building towards something. Right. And this entire thing is building towards something. So I think that sometimes when people are offering comic criticism, and I, you know, did this myself when I was reviewing comics, it's so easy to look at a single issue and to critique a single issue, but that would be like looking at a single. Frame a single like, yeah, uh, a single scene, and talking about how that scene was successful or a failure when you don't know the entire context of that episode or that movie. So it's actually really lazy whenever I do, that. <laughs> I think whenever other people do that. It's incredibly easy to critique a piece of something when you don't have the full picture, and we inherently in comics since it's spoon fed one issue at a time. Don't have the full picture. You have to give a little grace there. I think you have to give a little bit of like, I am trusting, I'm still in, I am trusting the process, and I'm gonna see where this goes. If it gets uninteresting enough where you're like, I'm out, I'm bored, then okay, that comic failed for you because at least it, it didn't even hold your interest to continue right. to see where it's going. But so long as you're still in and invested, then you're like, all right, I'm along for the journey, I'm trusting that this piece will play into a bigger picture. And I think so far, the way that this arc was written and where it ends with Hazel breaking down and understanding the weight of her father's death, the way that the audience felt that, I think that that was done really well. And that leaves me confident that like, yes, this is, <laughs> you didn't suddenly forget how to write. <laughs> like, yeah, they, there's, right. there's, Like There's a plan here. There's a story that's being told and I am in the middle of that story.
1: Yeah. And I think to your point, Jordan, that setup is maybe something that's also like people have waited years for the continuation of this story. And what we've gotten in these past few new issues in volume 10 now has been set up, right? Like characters like Bombazine are introduced, but we don't know much about him yet. Mm -hmm. And these new characters are coming in. We're told that they'll play a part in Hazel's life, but they won't be around long according to Hazel's narration in in chapter 60.
2: Yeah.
1: But, Still, we don't know a whole lot about them yet. Like this volume and this chapter seems to honestly be sort of the resolution of Marco's death. Like you're saying, Jordan, like the emotional resolution of his death and the setup for the rest of the story. Like we still have dozens of more issues and chapters to go. There's much more of this story left to be told. And I completely agree with you. To judge it on one volume, on one section, uh, is not the way to do it.
2: Yeah, and the one thing I would add too is that there's the the tendency to romanticize the past. So, That's so we, true. <laughs> we might forget for anyone who's like gone back to reread issues of Saga. Like there was there was a lot of equally slow moments, or more like there's there's a lot of right. foundation building. Right, it's just that when it was so new to us, people could be more. Patient with that, people could be more forgiving of it, or, or you know, the, it won't it won't bother them the same, or it bothered them a lot, and then we just again romanticize the past because we remember the good stuff, we remember how we felt when certain things happened and how heightened we we were. But this type of pacing isn't new. This type of foundation building isn't new. It's happened a lot in this series.
1: Yeah, we just finished our deep dive into Volume Five on this podcast, and. I would argue volume five is more disjointed and weirdly paced than volume 10 is, honestly. So, uh,
0: you know. Well, And there's even the problem that lots of folks read this book binged. They binged through the volumes during the hiatus. And now all of a sudden they're forced to slow it to the pace, especially if you're not a regular comics reader. The idea of reading something, you know, 22 pages at a time feels brutal, brutally, abysmally slow. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I, I think that that will be a test for this book. But I. I really think it's the best way to read it because you ruminate on it. I'm not a fan of binge watching or binge reading. And I just think that like, it's a really great way to dig into it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, with that little conversation out of the way about chapter 60 in this arc, we still have more to talk about, but we're going to take a quick break. But stick around folks, because when we come back, Alan and Jordan and I are going to share our favorite panels and favorite quotes from chapter 60. So we'll see you in a minute.
0: And we're back. Okay, so Jordan shared with us his favorite panel already, which is great. Abu, do you want to talk about what was your favorite panel or,
1: as we sometimes break the rules, series of panels (laughs) from this particular chapter? No, I follow the rules today. It's just one panel because I didn't have to give it a second thought. It's that gorgeous full page spread when you flip the page and the rocket ship tree is on fire, it's going up in flames, and the silhouettes of our heroes Are in the foreground all we see is just the shadows of our heroes in the front gorgeous panel but i mean like it's an emotional bombshell of course we flip the page and we just see this horrible image which actually in the previous panel is hinted at because if you look at squire's screen there's like a glare there's like a bit of a like flame glare in it so i like that foreshadowing as well but this panel, just gorgeous artwork. Like Once again, we, we rave about Fiona and her art in this story on this podcast, like every single episode. But here yet again is another testament to her skill. The shock of just turning that page and seeing that image is visceral. And I think the art adds so much more to it. I mean, I don't think I'll ever forget this like haunting image of the Rocket ship tree on fire, and pieces and parts of it, like these wooden chunks of it, sort of falling off and falling apart. Parts of it are melting away in the flames. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's haunting. There's so much emotion packed into one image. And it's honestly like frames sort of in like a movie poster way, right? Like you could take this one panel, blow it up, and it could be like a movie poster that lives on your wall. And I think, again, that just speaks to Fiona's skill as a, as a storyteller through her art. And her skill in hitting us with these bombshells visually, not a single word is being spoken in this panel. It is just the wide sort of wide shot sort of visual of this horrible scene that we're witnessing.
0: Yeah, for me, the panels of Fiona that always strike me the most are the ones that I can
1: hear. Mm. Like
0: I can hear it when I turn the page and like I can hear the flames and I can hear and almost like feel the heat. And like when she manages to have me have almost those sort of like multi sensory experiences like that's what i got from this one and it's funny you mentioned stranger things earlier jordan like this looks like yeah, almost <laughs> something from the upside down right because like right, everything right. is all burnt out everything is all like destroyed and falling apart and yeah it's 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 that like bizarro version of this one constant the one constant in this story other than the characters has been this rocket ship tree since they found it way, way, way back in volume one. And now it's ripped away in this, like, I don't know, Viking-esque funeral pyre or something like that.
1: Yeah. It's heartbreaking stuff.
0: What about you, Alan? Did you have a favorite panel? So mine, I broke the rules again. And <laughs> so often in this book, the panels are like storyboards. And in this one, it's the series of panels that Fiona does of, I think you talked about this a little bit already, Jordan, the series of panels that Fiona does of Hazel's little face as she mm. has finally like opened yeah. up the box of grief inside her own heart and just like what seeing this this thing, the one thing that has been constant through her like up and down all over the place life is ripped away from her. And it starts out as this very like quizzical face and then it cuts to her initial shock and then the next face is her like eyes starting to well with tears and then it's just the grief, the grief just yeah. rolling down her face. And, you know, I reference on this podcast a fair amount. I have a small child. She's about to turn five. and it nothing else has really hit me as hard other than when Marco actually died in fifty four as yeah. these panels. And this maybe even hits harder just because I see how much pain Hazel has been holding, and that, like, it's been Hazel's story this entire time up until now. And this is the first moment where Fiona really shows us this transition to, The grief and to finally accepting the grief and i have i have like welled up with some tears every time i've looked at it including i can feel myself getting yeah it's just the power of of the images
2: i think uh, i'm probably beating a dead horse at this point but i'm just glad that the story earned that like that it would you wouldn't have felt that same way if that was the first issue or that was the first pages of saga 55 Mm -hmm. like you can't stay at a 10 from years ago and then be starting at a ten, you know, <laughs> right, in twenty twenty two. It just wouldn't carry over that long, so they made us earn that by her suppressing that box of grief until it opened up at the end of the arc. I, I, it's yeah, I think it, I think it hit appropriately.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're so right. I am curious what everyone's favorite quotes are. Jordan, did you have a favorite quote from chapter sixty that really struck you?
2: Yes. Okay, so I'm going to pass on the obvious one. Which would be my girl Clara saying, "I know my rights, and I don't owe you a whispered tweet from my arid snatch." That would be that would be too easy, too obvious, and that that's just a good line. And there's nothing that I can comment on there narratively. Yeah, that's just you know clever mm-hmm. and fun and Clara. Like, I, I love that. One of the quotes that I do like that made me think of something narratively is in the scene they're like, she's like picking up a jockstrap mm. and Hazel is narrating and she's saying basically not to remember their names. It goes, our rocket's la- latest passengers turn borders were former bandmates drinking and Hector. Yeah. But it's not like you need to remember their names or anything. They wouldn't be with us much longer. And I really like that foreshadowing for two reasons. One is that he, he does this quite a bit where he'll sort of mention, you know, He'll, he'll allude to the fact that someone will either leave or otherwise die. And it's a trick. So that's like one thing that I, I, I like the trick of it. And I like that it feels like a mercy emotionally. Like, like mm. don't get too connected. Don't get too connected. <laughs> they're not going to, you know, they're, they're not going to be with us that long. So that's, that's one thing that I enjoy the, the mercy of it. But the trick part of it is that it sets you up to look for their death or their departure. And inevitably, I mean, this is I, I usually try to avoid making predictions because I just like enjoying the ride, but I will indulge that that side of my brain for a second and say, like, this is the clear head fake where while you're waiting for one of those characters to die or to leave, someone else who's gonna be unexpected uh. is going to die or leave. And that is part of the, you know, mystery game when I'm reading something like this that I know is set up to crush my spirit, is He's leading me to believe it's 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 the magician's prestige. Like he's like, look at this hand. Something's gonna happen in this hand, and in the back of my mind, I know. Don't look at that hand. Something else <laughs> is gonna happen on the other hand. And now I just want to know what's gonna happen on the other hand. Like, and and am I going to be able to expect it? Am I gonna be caught off guard? Like I've been caught off guard so many times. Turning the page and someone's getting stabbed, or am I going to be like, okay? okay This is where it's leading me to believe that something's going to happen to guitar and it's not going to be guitar at all. It's going to be someone else in that scene.
1: Yeah. That kind of foreshadowing BKV loves to do. He's done it before in the series as well. And that emotional manipulation, he knows how to get us.
2: (laughs) He's good at it.
0: Well, we've also, we've talked about this a bunch with how he plays with future Hazel as a narrator, already knowing what the story is going to be. Yeah. And whether or not that makes her a, a reliable relator of facts, or mm. whether she is herself filtering the narrative through her experience, right? So like she becomes a narrative device in herself.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: As Brian Kavon is using her, which is a really, really excellent tool. So you have like a third-person omniscient narrator, sort of, but it's like sort a narrator of. with an agenda, and it's amazing. And I love the way that he uses it, and I love the you pointing that out.
2: And one thing I would add there is that Hazel's reliability almost, I don't know if this is actually true, but it seems like it would naturally evolve because she was a baby for so much Like when she's narrating some of the (laughs) stuff. It's obviously not her own memory of it. It's the story that was told to her. So, you know, we're getting certain degrees of separation from the actual story. We're hearing what Hazel told and then is now telling to us. But now she's of the age where she could be telling things and actually be the one who was there for it and is telling it from a first-hand experience rather than a secondhand experience. Right. So earlier Hazel, theoretically, is more unreliable than the Hazel is now, and maybe the closer we get to present age Hazel, whatever that present age is, then it's you know right. we have a better idea of the person that she became, and we'll probably have a better idea of how her storytelling might be affected by all of the experiences that we've seen her go through.
0: Yeah, I it, it's a good connection to what my favorite quote was, which is actually, there's a connection between a line that Hazel says, as Hazel, the character in the story that, that connects directly to a line of narration that came right before it. So my favorite quote is Hazel says, quote, I don't feel most things most days other than like hungry or angry or sleepy, end quote. Which to me is one of the most accurate depictions of like high functioning depression. It's Mm -hmm. not like you're sad. It's not like you're like crying your eyes out. It's just like you feel everything is flat and all the richness is gone. And you're like you're like crushing that part of yourself that allows yourself to feel. And that clearly is how Hazel has felt since Marco died. She's just like she's not having feelings per se. She's just having reactions. And it connects directly to There's some Hazel narration right after the scene that you were just talking about where Hazel says, even as a little girl, I could sense that mom had enough going on without also having to worry about my dumb problems. So I kept them to myself. Uh. So like within the same chapter, you have Brian saying she's keeping all of her problems to herself. And then you see directly what that's causing, which is these emotions that are being suppressed. And she has high functioning depression. And it's because she's repressing all of this grief emotion and so it's like we're running into that we're getting closer and closer to like self-aware hazel and hazel in the moment and at some point they're going to have to meet and we're going to wonder like how are they going to deal with that where will that time jump happen or is this old granny hazel who's been telling us this story all along and we're going to get some terrible like god i was about to say how i met your mother thing.
2: (laughs) <laughs> let's, let's not speak that into existence. <laughs> Don't set us up for that disappointment.
1: No, 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 no.
0: Abu, what, what about you? What, what was what was your
1: favorite quote? Well, that was my favorite quote too. <laughs> oh shit. You, you basically spoke exactly what I wrote down in the script as well. That quote where she talks about this like high functioning depression that she's feeling. And I think to Jordan's point about Hazel's narrator kind of becoming more and more reliable as she gets older and we see more of her internal thoughts and memories and feelings this chapter i think sets a lot of that up like i think we're going to start seeing more of internal hazel feelings and emotions in the early chapters and in the early volumes hazel's really just narrating the story like literally the narrator and then this happened and then this thing was going to happen now it's like we're seeing the emotions she's going through as like a young adolescent. And the narrator is a companion to those emotions rather than just being the person who moves the story along or simply provides exposition. Like a lot of volumes one, two, and three is Hazel just explaining there's a war. This is what Wreath is. This is what Landfall is. And there's less and less of that as we start to now turn towards more emotional Hazel and seeing more of what her internal struggles and thoughts are. And I think I think we're seeing the narrator sort of evolve in real time as Hazel gets older and older as well. I will also say the thing that I don't want to speak into existence, but I think is very clearly being set up is some sort of Alana and Hazel breakup, because in the past couple of chapters, Bombazine and Alana had this argument where Bombazine was like, you're not a good mother. And that we talked about, Alan and I talked about that on this podcast, but like that stuck with me. And I think that's going to be a bug that sticks in Alana as well. And now here we're getting moments where Hazel's like, yeah, I don't really open up or talk to my mom about anything because she's got her own shit going on. She's too busy for me. To me, the fact that like Alana and Hazel are not connecting and opening up to each other in this way spells potential disaster for the two of them and their relationship. Or at the very least, a big hurdle that the two will have to work through together at some point. Because a- as they are now, they cannot continue not opening up to each other and speaking about their problems with each other as-, as mother-daughter.
0: Yeah, if you think about it, the most stable time in Hazel's life up until this point in the book is when she was in the like weird prison for orphans of the war, right? Mm-hmm. And she was yeah. with mm-hmm. the spider lady teacher and like... She was not in imminent mortal peril at any point during that entire time. And yeah, that, that thing that Bombazine said about how Alana is always putting Hazel in danger and that makes her maybe an unfit parent. I definitely didn't want to be like, Ooh, that, <laughs> that has some,
1: that's a little too close to the mark, you know, like <laughs> right now having like a small daughter,
0: I'm like, I wouldn't want Alana to babysit my kid. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think what stings most about that conversation with Bombazine is that it wasn't that, like, Hazel's always unsafe with you because your life is dangerous. It's that your life is dangerous because you're the type of person who seeks out chaos. Like, you are the type of person, like, we all know or have met that type of person who, either from their disposition or their attitude or the decisions that they make, they just are always Looking for trouble, they are always finding trouble. They are just chaos agents, right and that is largely what. Like, there's yeah, that that hurts because it's true. Yeah. Like, she, yeah, She finds herself in a lot of situations. <laughs> some of them impose on her, but a lot of them are ones that were of her own decision making. And I, I think that that would sting for Alana and for any parent thinking that like it's not just things happening. To my family. It's that I am sort of walking towards these things. I am the problem here. I am the one who has something, you know, fractured in me, where I'm willingly putting us in these situations.
1: Yeah, uh, tough. Yeah,
0: So tough. I have one more quick thing that I want all of us to offer an opinion on, which is sure. a fan theory that I saw in the Facebook group, which if we want to dismiss it out of hand, we totally can. But I'm okay. curious each of your responses. So there is a fan theory, In the Facebook group that the reason why Alana had to shave her head after she came back from the drug dealing mission is because she had sex with the Wolfman drug dealer, even though she explicitly said that she would not have sex with him because he didn't read books. But she comes back, she has fleas, she shaved her head and she won't talk about it. So, Jordan, as our guest, having never heard that fan theory before, but I just presented it. What do you think?
2: Totally fair theory. I think that's a total fair <laughs> theory. <laughs> I, that's, I normally don't indulge fan theories, but that, I mean, her shaving her head is going to be explained. Like that's not yeah. going to be something that just like, oh, this random thing that is actually meaningless to the story. Like, no, that type of thing has a meaning.
1: Right. And
2: this other character who was introduced, like who, you know, both widowers and like they blatantly said that they're not going to sleep with each other. Yeah, that, I think that's a fair that's a, that's a fair theory. And right. Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples would not hesitate to throw in a flashback sex scene of Alana in a wolf person. Yeah, like, That's the type of thing that they would draw, that they would <laughs> yeah. put into saga. So I would not be surprised if that was an accurate fan theory. And I think we'll definitely, even if that's not accurate, I think we'll definitely find out the circumstances behind her shaving her head.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I I agree with Jordan there. As as much as I want to dismiss everything I see on Facebook out of hand, I yeah, that's that rings true to me. I can see a world where where that happens. And yeah, Jordan is spot on. Like the head shaving didn't just happen for no reason. Right. There is going to be a reveal. Right. For that eventually, at some point, so it's going to be significant, and maybe that theory is why. Of course, because it's Facebook and everyone has to top each other, oh, no. making the theory worse
0: <laughs> and worse. The, the the next logical conclusion was not only that she had sex with the wolf person, but that she was impregnated by Pregnant. the wolf person.
2: Yep, that was the, that, yep. That, yep uh, that's uh, yeah. where the story's going to go. Once you start, once you said someone one upped it. And they said the natural conclusion of that. I was like, yeah, oh my someone's going to speculate the pregnancy. <laughs> that's that's when I draw the line. I'm like, there has to be more actual evidence. Right.
0: There's, that's, that's not a Brian K. Vaughn thing. That's just a soap opera thing. Right? Right. Someone <laughs> like, so exactly. had sex and gets knocked up.
2: And that's a fan theory thing where you're just trying to think of the most extreme conclusion right. of anything that, like, whether the extreme part has evidence of it or not. Like, speculate on that type of thing when there is, you know if Alana starts showing morning sickness symptoms or something like that, like, okay, speculate away. But for now, I think the fair fan theory is that like, yeah, there's, there's definitely evidence that Alana and the wolf person whose name I can't remember was flirting, was talking about sleeping with with each other and they're both widowers. And then suddenly she comes back with a shaved head.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, Jordan, you have been very gracious with your time with us and, we hope you've had as much fun as we have. This has been a blast. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. This, was so much, this is so much fun. <laughs> and you don't understand, like, it's it's very rare, especially with comics, to be able to have this type of conversation. Right. This, mm-hmm. Like, when you read comics, you'll just read them. It's not like appointment TV where everyone is watching the same thing the same, you know, the same day or even the same mm-hmm. week. Like, I fall behind on comics all the time. Yeah. I have to catch up. And it's really rare that I have the opportunity to talk about a comic that I recently finished reading with other people who have recently finished reading it and care about it as much as I do. So this was a ton of fun. Thanks for yeah. having me on.
1: A big reason we started this podcast, Alan and I were just lonely and wanted someone to talk to about Saga.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that being a nerd? Isn't that yes. being a nerd? I mean, It's just yes. like having something that you like <laughs> love a lot and you want to talk about it with someone. Yeah but you, you don't have anyone to talk about it with. So you have to go find those people or you have to make those people. Right.
1: right,
0: Yep. no, absolutely. Well, speaking of the bonds of nerd culture that bring us together, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book? Maybe if there's anybody who wants to hear about your own experience, your own journey?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, religion, and pop culture. And the title is my, my favorite thing about the book. It's sort of a great it serves two functions, like on one hand, for anyone who grew up as particularly Black or a person of color and grew up being nerdy and watching anime, the statement that Piccolo is Black is sort of a, a no-brainer. It's very, very obvious. Yeah. It's, like it's something that everyone within a certain bubble knows and recognizes and just sort of takes as fact. So that's one function of the title, but the other function of the title is the more sort of serious conversation about racial coding and characters and diversity and representation. and what animation was like in the 80s and 90s and how that impacted people, which is the idea that racial coding exists and that there's a group of people who learn to racial racially code characters because of the lack of representation that existed in media. And there was also a larger, significantly larger group of, you know, media and fans, generally white people who weren't thinking about these things the same way. And to introduce to those readers the idea of racial coding and how important diversity and representation was to those kids who didn't have it. So the entire thing is written through my perspective growing up and what a lot of these characters meant to me and how they informed who I became and my identity.
0: Just for folks who, like me, maybe did not watch, what what show was Piccolo a character on?
2: Piccolo was a character on the anime Dragon Ball Z. So if you grew up at a certain time and you were watching, you know, Cartoon Network, you were watching Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z and Samurai Jack and Yu-Gi-Oh! And certain things like that. And Piccolo is one of countless characters who a lot of us sat down in front of the TV and saw them as a black character. Whether it's Piccolo, whether it's Martian Manhunter, whether it's Knuckles from Sonic the Hedgehog or Ursula from The Little Mermaid or Goliath. From gargoyles or Max from a goofy movie. There are plenty of characters who are all coded as black, even though they weren't written as explicitly black. And there are a lot of reasons behind that. And there are a lot of impacts that came as a result of it. And the book basically touches on all of those themes through my life.
1: We'll make sure we drop links in the show notes to your book, and to your work, and to your Twitter for our listeners as well, so they can follow your amazing work and all of your great writing as well.
2: Thank you. Really appreciate you guys having me on the show. This is this was so Thank much. Of course.
1: Great to have you, and uh, you, you've you been an amazing first guest. You have set the bar high, so the next <laughs> the next person's going to have to really, really work their ass off to be as good as you've been. Thank you this so much. good. I like it that way. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Alan, what a conversation with Jordan. I had a ton of fun. I didn't expect it to get as geeky as it did there.
0: I didn't either. I was really, really (laughs) delighted to hear just all of the reference points and really just like the sort of narrative analysis that Jordan had to offer was a lot. I mean, we might just have to make him a regular feature on this show because clearly he loves the book as much as we love the book. And uh, he brings a perspective that uh, is different than ours, which is the most fun thing about doing this podcast, like we mentioned, is getting to hear from, talk to, and
1: share ideas with people
0: who love the same thing that we do.
1: Yeah, definitely. There you go, Jordan. That's an open invitation to come back anytime. So next up on this podcast, we're going to be back on our grind, doing our deep dive read along episodes, and we will be starting volume six. So make sure before the next episode comes out that you have read chapters 31, 32 and 33 in preparation for that deep dive. Absolutely.
0: And like we said at the top of the show, this was the last of the new chapter quick reactions that we're going to get to do until next year. Brian and Fiona. (laughs) So please let us know what other kinds of episodes you'd like to hear. Character deep dives, explorations perhaps of different inspiration for Saga. There are so many reference points that feed into this epic saga or maybe you want discussions of brian and fiona's other work both of these artists have so many different things they've been involved in maybe we could talk about those yeah send us an email to hazel at loreparty.com and whatever you do do not forget the double s in <laughs> the middle
1: <laughs> that double s i'm still convinced there are millions of emails floating out there for <laughs> us millions,
0: <laughs> millions of emails <laughs>
1: Well friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore party. Music on this show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of great music. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together. Even if we have to wait six more months. Brian and Fiona!